Hi, and thanks for choosing Heroes in Our Midst. I'm Michelle Sawatsky-Coop, and today's episode highlights a guy they call the Coach Doc. Really, his name is Dr. Wade Gilbert, an internationally renowned coaching consultant and award-winning professor in the Department of Kinesiology at California State University, Fresno. The guy has taught and studied coaching and talent development at the University of Ottawa, UCLA, and Fresno State, and is the author of the highly acclaimed book, Coaching Better Every Season. Now, I first met him and heard him speak at the Cal Botterill Legacy Lecture Series at the University of Winnipeg quite a few years ago now. He has served as consultant to so many college and high school coaches. He is a longtime advisor to the United States Olympic and Paralympic Committee Coach Education Department and has counseled coaches and sport organizations around the world in every sport imaginable at the very highest levels. Currently, Wade is also serving as the mental performance coach for the Canadian women's softball team that will be competing in Tokyo this summer. And after hearing all of that, we have the opportunity to listen and learn from him for the next hour or so right here for free. I feel like we should all get our notebooks and pens out. Before I ask him a bunch of coaching questions, I thought it would be better to find out who this Dr. Wade Gilbert actually is. And I thanked him so much for joining us on the podcast. Oh, thanks, Michelle. Yeah, it's uh, very humbling, uh, especially when I saw the invitation and originally thought, well, maybe this is supposed to go to somebody else, but I'll respond anyways. (laughs) But uh, yeah, I know it's really exciting to have this opportunity to share. And like you mentioned before, when you know, people kind of come alive through their stories and storytelling is, I think, innately wired into us. That's how we've evolved and survived as a species, right? Through storytelling. And, and I see it with all more and more when I work with different groups around the world that, that that's a common denominator. So you have cultural differences and uh, resource differences and all I mean, everything else is, is unique in a sense, it, but stories really are common. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the stories may be a little bit different, but everyone has a, has similar types of stories that they use to relay values and purpose and vision and things like that. I'm really excited because you work as a coach consultant. You've done a ton of coaching. And I think the role of a coach Uh, can be defined in so many ways. And I think we kind of, lots of us, as we grew up, we've coached somebody, even if it's our own kids or something, maybe not on a court at all, just every day uh, in life. So I'm super excited to hear all that you have to say. But um, Wade, before we get to like the end of your story, I mean, where you are now is incredible and heard that in the intro, but uh, I'd like to know where you started. Tell us a little bit about that. It's funny because when I meet with my students here, or any student that I notice quite often, they they have a lot of anxiety about their story. Like what's the next chapter in their story? And especially when students come to want to change majors, let's say it, they, they have, you can see like guilt and anxiety and worry. Like I thought I was going to be a biochemistry major or a pharmacist or a coach or whatever it might be. And now I don't, I'm not passionate about that. And, but I've already spent two years in that field, you know, and taking courses and said, how would you know until you walk that path? Like you don't know what the story is until you're writing the story. And now you know that that's not the path for you. So you had to go through that. 
And you can see it just often I think, well, maybe no one's ever said this to this to them before. And that's kind of unfortunate because we get programmed into this is our story. And we have like my daughter is gonna is applying to colleges now and she's writing the next chapter in her story. And she switched majors a couple of times already in her mind, which she wants to be. And and just last night in the kitchen, and she said, you know what, Dad, I think I'm leaning more towards this now, which is kind of a deviation from what she was wanting to do six months ago. And I said, okay, now you know, so let's try that, right? Like that's, there's nothing wrong with that. So for me, um, and as you get older, uh, you know, I just turned 50 last year and I read the other day, you know, it's not a midlife crisis, it's a midlife reassessment. So it's, you just kind of are constantly reassessing where and why and who and um, so, and you, as I do more interviews and things like this, you reflect more on, on these types of questions. So I think more and more, I'm a believer that things do happen for a reason that you might not realize at the moment, or maybe you realize later in life and formative years, small town, Northern Ontario, a little town of 5,000 people at the time, New Liskard, Ontario, born in Toronto, only for a year or two, then up to New Liskard. And it's funny, as I talk to more people in, in Canada across different sports, I, I kind of sheepishly say, yeah, this little town, New Liskard, for nobody ever hear this. And inevitably, somebody says, oh, my gosh, my brother lives in New Liskard, or I grew up in New Liskard. Oh, what? So there's, uh, that was nice. I was there for 10 years, so really formative years of development. And, you know, small town, walk a couple miles to school each day, you know, compared to today, you walk, I just think back, you know, as a five, six, eight year old, your parents, you walk out the door, yeah, okay, see you later. You're two miles down train tracks and through the woods and all over the place. And it's just what you did. And we were basically, it's like Tom Sawyer, you know, you're just adventures. We had fields and train tracks and forests in our backyard and outdoor rink in our backyard and so that was really fun and I, that stayed with me my whole life. And then I knew that sport was an outlet for me, much like it was, I'm sure, for you and many of your guests. And I was a gym rat and wasn't good enough to make a living, or at least in my mind anyway, for other people's minds, make a living doing anything in sport. And really, in hindsight, now that I know more about talent development and coaching, I didn't really have an opportunity to, to train to see what I maybe could have done. Um, but anyways, that is what it is. And so I thought I'd end up doing physical education and uh, give it be a chance to be around sport and kids and, and get to wear shorts to work every day, right? And, <laughs> um, but then in college, I, one of my most influential coaches was a professor, a guy named Pierre Trudel, and very influential around the world, but in Canada in particular. And we still, to this day, talk and do projects together and he pulled me out of a class one time and said hey you ever think of grad school I had no idea grad school what, what's that what do you do and so that kind of started this path where he opened my eyes to possibilities and I really enjoyed it and we connected uh, it was a good human connection and finished uh, ended up staying there for uh, grad school master's and a PhD and yeah, so that's, that's kind of the path. It's always been very eclectic and kind of next best step. There's never been some grand vision of, I want to have this type of job, or I, I just learned that 
I thrived when I had autonomy, support, and the ability to create and be around environments and people who shared the same kind of energy and interest in creativity and learning. So and then from there, UCLA and then now to Fresno. Amazing. Now in your studies, you know, usually people go into master's or, or they do their doctorate, they do a ton of research and they have really a passion for something. And what were you passionate about? Like, what did you zero in on? I've always been really curious about learning. So to me, it's like a puzzle and trying to figure out like, what's the best way to help someone learn something or get better at something or achieve something. And, and then of course, within sport environment. Um, so in fact, my doctorate was in psychopedagogy, which is really just the psychology of teaching, basically. So it's trying to understand what do we know about learning and how learning works. And particularly, I focused a lot on adult learning because I wanted to understand how coaches can become better. And so how do, how do they learn? And there's a whole field of research and science around adult learning. It's andragogy as opposed to pedagogy. And so start to dive into that. And then really in the last eight to 10 years, I've started to dive more into neuroscience, trying to better understand the neuroscience related to learning. Because at the end of the day, you start with these big ideas and you just, you know, kind of whittle away and get into smaller and smaller areas. And at the end of the day, from what I've learned anyways, learning is just a connection between two neurons. So what do we know about how to enhance and facilitate and build connections between neurons? And that's really the elemental part of trying to learn something or teach someone something. So yeah, just keep exploring. Yeah. Well, lifelong learner and a lifelong teacher too. And it just sounds like coaching. I was just chatting with a friend of mine. He coaches hockey and, you know, I've done a bunch of coaching and volleyball and really whatever sport you're in. It seems like every season you could talk for hours to someone else and say, okay, I have this situation. I have this situation. What would you do? And how would you do this? And um, talk a bit about your coaching though. Um, how did that fit in? You were obviously busy studying, busy in school, but you also did a lot of coaching in your life. So where in the timeline did you actually put what you were learning, what you were doing on paper and in these research books? to practice yeah so I was a multi-sport athlete and played you know double a triple a hockey all that kind of stuff up until 16 17 and then gravitated more towards I know this now but I didn't know it as a kid left hockey and had a lot of resistance to that from coaches and players I had people I played with who played in the NHL and had siblings played in the NHL and I remember getting a phone call from an NHL player saying, what are you doing? You know, you're, you're missing this big opportunity, but for something inside me, just, it didn't feel like that. I just didn't have the passion for it, but I know now at the way I'm wired, I'm, I'm a, I love to play. And that has very much influenced how I teach, how I work with people, the playfulness, the joyfulness, it's got to like, and we see it with youth sport now where a lot of kids are burning out, dropping out and all the issues around youth sport and how it's a business and always kind of joke, you know, kids, eight-year-old kids aren't looking for a job. They're not looking for a baseball job or a hockey job. They want to play. They want to play with their friends. And we've taken a lot of that away. So my, some, most, honestly, of my fondest memories were 
pond hockey and outdoor rink hockey and street hockey. And I actually worked at an outdoor rink at our, in our local community in Ottawa. Um, and I remember I'd be out there till after high school, in high school, when I was probably 16, 17, take the bus from school, go right to the rink. And we had a little shack, right? And I'd be the one opening it up. And, and, and then I'd be there. We closed the lights at 10, it had lights and boards, really nice community rink, outdoor rink. I'd close, we close it, shut it down officially at 10. And then I'd often be there till 11 or later helping some adults would come out, we'd flood the ice. But for me, those moments of just freedom, you're playing on this beautiful sheet of ice and it's super cold or whatever, but, and, and kids are, and adults are coming, going, you know, people drop in for an hour, hour and a half, then they go home for dinner and whatever, but you're there the whole time and just playing for hours. And, and that to me is, is really, again, kind of elemental to sport, whether it's a national team, a pro team, there's a kid inside all those people. They remember that. They remember those moments. Doesn't matter what sport it was of just playing before the coach got there, right? In the gym, just messing around or after practice, just messing around. And I, I even, I, you're talking about, we were talking earlier about funny stories. I remember I think this is true. You know how your mind plays tricks on you. But when I was in elementary school, probably grade four or five, I remember going to the gym and you know, the elementary school gyms are smaller and with a buddy and we do this fairly often. So I don't know how this happened. I'm starting to wonder, did this really happen? We would be able to pull out the equipment from some, I guess maybe his dad was, an administrator, I cannot remember, but we had access to the closet with the equipment and we would pull out the mini trampolines and we would do acrobatic dunks on the backboard and up and down the gym, all kinds of crazy stuff. So we were probably 11 or 12. And it's just stuff like that that sticks with you. And I think anyone who plays sport has memories like that. And it's important to come back to those. And I often when I work with teams and they get stuck or they're in a losing streak or a big moment coming up, I'll get them to go back to that moment. There's a moment in there somewhere where you remember the joy of just being able to play this game or this sport and why you did it. And, and it's just, it's such a, a great experience, I think, that, that binds us together. So, so coaching, my coaching, the coaching that I did throughout college and even today, I'm still coaching. I'm coaching my kids' hockey team, coached probably five or six different sports and, but all youth sport. And then the coaching that I've done in the last few years where I've been coaching coaches is all different sports, all different levels. But my, my experience as a coach, a technical staff coach, let's say, would be mostly with the youth sports setting. Uh, you know, you talk about the love of sport, and I think about that at the highest level, how once these athletes reach Olympic level or professional level, the value, I mean, their skills are going to be there. The talent is incredible. And then the freedom to play. It's more like, I think some coaches are afraid of that, right? Like stay within the program and stay in the system and, and you can stay in the system and still love the game. Um, now you obviously loved coaching, love the learning, love all of that. I, I mean, we can read all about some of your concepts. You've written a book and it's hugely popular coaching better every season. That's the sort of the goal, I guess. Hey, for a coach, you never quite 
quite arrive. And um, you talk about in your book, you talk about everything, preseason, in season, postseason, all of this. So how do you approach that? Do you have certain concepts? Sometimes I feel like, how do you write one book that's going to help all of us coaches? Yeah, well, another funny story here. I had always, I think we all have books inside of us, you know, and some of them get put on paper, others get shared orally, you know, family or whatever, whatnot. So I always, I always kept a file, like a word file on my computer for years when book ideas popped in my head uh, or topics within a book, but I never really knew, I never pursued it. And again, it's, I think that's another example of following the signs and being open to the signs and following your heart and things happen when they're supposed to happen. And so then the publisher reached out to me and said, hey, you should write a book. I said, oh, funny you should say that. I have a lot of ideas for <laughs> writing a book. Um, and so we went back and forth. And what I learned about writing a book, at least if you are trying to market a book, it's one thing if you self-publish and you just, you know what, I got a book in me, I'm writing it and sells five copies, great. It's really for me. But when you're working with a publisher, it's always a compromise because they're for profit. They're trying to make money. They want to sell copies of the book. It's not for Wade, it's for the public. So it was not the book I necessarily envisioned, but I think it's better um, because it has had a good reach and good impact and people seems to resonate with people. But I remember a buddy after I signed the book contract, I told him, Hey, I'm going to write a book. Finally going to do it. And he said, Oh yeah, well, won't take you very long, right? Because you've been doing this for decades. And I had a sabbatical book planned, lined up for that. But our sabbaticals are half a year. So it'll be about six months. Yeah, I, I should be fine. I'll finish it in there. Well, it you know, three and a half years later, and they finally said, okay, enough writing. You need to stop. Because we're going back and forth. And, and as you know, the more you learn, the more re you realize how much you don't know. And to be honest with you, I've shared this with other people. Many By the time I got finished writing the book, I felt less qualified to write the book than when I had started because I realized I learned how much I don't know about these things. So anyways, going ahead with that, I, I, we thought, well, the, the big idea being, like you mentioned, the book is not an endpoint. This, this is, is a gateway and a catalyst. And catalyst is one of my favorite words right now. So I, I like to do things with, with coaches, with groups, with teams, with my students that serve as catalysts. Now I always tell my students in my classes, say, look, we're not gonna finish anything in this class, okay? We're just starting, you know, continuing conversations. You have your whole life to learn about these things. And so that's how I kind of approached the book. I wanted it to be a gap, like fill a gap between science and biographies, autobiographies. So because those two worlds often don't speak to each other, at least in my experience in coaching, you have textbooks, scientific journals, scientific papers, those people talk to each other, they go to conferences with each other. And then you have coaches, and they go to their conferences, their events, they write newsletters, but they seldom inter interact. Uh, and it might happen like, you know, at a conference where someone gives a keynote and then there's a panel, but I mean, really integrating these ideas. And so that was my goal with the book, um, share stories, real stories, real coaches, but also connected to science, not saying one is right or wrong or better or worse. It's just 
here's some ideas I would really encourage you to reflect on as a, as a coach in your journey as a coach and took a long time. We didn't get that title until about three years in, um, you don't really know until you're done to say, Oh, of course that's the title. And it was, we wanted, we wanted to stay away from winning. We wanted to stay away from championship. We wanted to stay away from success. And we said, even though those might be catchy words in a title and, you know, on a bookshelf, you know, be success as a coach or championship coaching and which is great, but we wanted it to reinforce that this you're never done. And this is a process. So if you're serious about this craft and really want to be a great coach, you have to commit to continually getting better and reflecting. And so hopefully this book is a catalyst for you in that process. I'm curious to you, uh, you tried to stay away from those words in the title, but um, where does that fit for you in successful coaching? I think a lot of people, we don't know where to put that. Even in life, we don't know where to put winning. We don't know where to put winning and losing. Should our kids, uh, should we never keep score? Um, what should we do in practice? Should we make them compete against each other? Shouldn't we? Well, you know, there's there's merit, I think, on all sides, but that question is is so common. Where do you put that in your thought process? Where does winning and losing fit into being a good coach or an effective coach? Well, it's funny because I had this conversation at the world championships, ice hockey world championships a couple of years ago, we were talking about it and, and it inevitably comes up in conversations. And I said, look, if you're alive, you are in a winning and losing situation. Okay. Life is competitive. And so in one sense, why do we even need to talk about it? Okay. Because you compete for spouses, resources, jobs, attention, that's life. If you're living, if you're breathing and you're alive, you're competing. That Everything is competitive. So like Coach John Wooden at UCLA, he, he never used the word win. When winning as coach of all time, he never talked about winning. Um, it's always about the process and your improvement and our self-set, our self-reference standards. And the winning on the scoreboard will take care of itself at that point. Um, but it's so I see that more and more. To me, it's a sign of maturity, um, maturing as an athlete, as a coach, as a team, where the early emphasis is on proving ourselves and winning and getting that external recognition. And then as, as you mature and you learn more about the real process and the journey, you realize that stuff's going to take care of itself. We could do everything right. You know, you've been there. And bad call, bad break, an injury, something happens. Are you a loser? No, just that's what happened today. So, but that's hard with the external pressures from sponsors and Olympic committees and everything else. Um, so I always, it's a constant, I don't pretend that it, it's not a, a battle. It's always a constant internal battle, a struggle. Uh, people struggle with that, but encourage, like Coach Wooden, he defined success as peace of mind and I used I did a session for rowing Canada I use that I use that as a, the definition because they wanted to talk about success that was actually in the title of the session success as a coach define, defining success as a coach so I walked them through that journey and I finished with okay so one way to think about it that I encourage you to reflect on is this idea of peace of mind if if you only you know 
if you've fully invested and given what you can to this effort, that's what more can you do? And that, that's Coach Wooden took that to his grave. You know, he lived to be 99, but that he always defined success as peace of mind and knowing that you gave the full effort to do everything you could to improve yourself or your team. So that, that's kind of how I approach it. I would never pretend that winning doesn't matter or it's an, an or situation, winning or development, winning or fun. Everything in life is and. <laughs> It's all of that. Yeah. You know, I think it's interesting. I, I maybe never have thought of it this way in that you talk about the fact that from the day we're born, we're competing for things. So that's true. We can be successful without the gold medal because sometimes we have to be because we can't can always control the outcome. Let me speak to managing those emotions and, and how do you, even if you know you did everything you could, but you're still sometimes so devastated. How can a coach deal with that when, when you're the coach that's doing it year after year? I mean, just to be able to, for longevity of being in the profession and in, you know, how do you deal with that? Balance and perspective and time. Hmm. And one of my favorite quotes, Phil Jackson, the basketball coach used to use this because he was very much into Eastern philosophy is you can't rush the river. And, you know, if you sit on a riverbank and you look at, at the flow of water, you can't accelerate it. You, you can't, it's going to flow at its own pace, at its natural pace. And so that, I kind of use that as a reminder, you can't rush the river. So you have these emotions, you're in a moment, you need to let those emotions wash over you, right? Like you need to experience that. You, you can't run away while well, you should, you, know, you can, you can try, but you having, I, and again, I think that comes with age and experience and maturity. You learn to give yourself space to process emotions, to, to let the river run, to let the wave wash over you and come back up for air. <laughs> and so it's, and another one of my favorite lines from, uh, a book, um, The Road Less Traveled, kind of the first self-help book. And the first line of that book, the first sentence is three words long. You know what the sentence is? Life is hard. That's the first sentence of the best, all-time best-selling self-help book. The first sentence is, life is hard. Let's start there, okay? And so that, again, is kind of peace of mind, acceptance, Good things are hard. Living is hard. Being alive is hard. So you're going to experience all these highs and lows and emotions. And that's part of being alive. Mm -hmm. And you need to have space and time to digest that. So a simple way to kind of put that in practice, to give you an example, would be, you know, I, I think I put this one in the book, you know, coaches sometimes we'll have kind of a decompression strategy. It's like re-entry. I joke with my friends, we go on a, a guy's backpacking and camping and hiking trip every year. And we always joke about re-entry. So you come back after five or six days in the woods, you show up, you're totally relaxed, refreshed. As soon as you get, walk in that door, you know, three babies running up to you, dogs barking. It's like, there's no re-entry, it's just, Right, And so as a coach, how do you create those decompression or re-entry moments? So like, is there a place on the, between the drive from the rink to home 
that you can pause and stop, a place you can pull over, a park, a mall, a Tim Hortons, you know, whatever, where it's kind of your, your decompression chamber. Okay, I'm gonna take a couple minutes, maybe I get my coffee, maybe check my phone, maybe go for a walk, whatever it is. So get back in the car, now I'm ready for the next moment in my day. Um, so having those, and what I found for me, I've tried to take that to heart more. Like when I was younger, I would, I, I'm very task oriented. So I would start, I wouldn't get up from the desk. I wouldn't leave. Like other people are coming by your office. Hey, let's go for lunch. No, no, I got to finish this. You know, I, I work right through lunch. I don't eat and just, you know, eight or 10 hours go by. You're sitting on your computer or whatever. And, and I've gotten better now at understanding, you know what? Those are precious moments. Somebody wants to chat with you, say, hey, you got a minute or you want to go for a walk? It's like, yeah, just come wait. It'll be fine. And also just I the building where I work, it's our campus is like a, it's like a park. Um, and there's different buildings are designated different um, kind of ecosystems. And ours is the palm building. So we have all these beautiful palm trees all around the building. So I'll force myself, you know, I even set a timer sometimes. You know what? 45 minutes, timer goes off, go for a walk, walk around the building, look up, don't look down, look up, look at the birds, look at the trees, look at the clouds. And I find doing little things like that allow you to, to you know, it's like charging your phone in, right? You got to recharge and go back at it. So we talk a lot about that with coaches. So for example, we're, you know, on the national team to work with right now, they're making team selection, they're making cuts. So that's hard. It's emotionally draining. And so we talk, you know, the coach and I talk, what do you, what are you doing the night before to make sure you're emotionally ready for that? What do you have planned that night after the cuts are made for you, not for the team, for you so that you can recharge. So little things like that. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. A lot of us think about the poor athletes that get cut, but we seldom think of the coach that's delivering the message and how that affects them. So we're talking about being real. And I, you know what I love the best is like, uh, we're really focusing on being sort of unapologetically human and how great people reached great success are exactly that. And you've touched on so many elements of humanness, which is, you know, leading us to strength. And, um, but when you go in and, and consult with certain teams and certain coaches, I'm sure, I mean, the reason they call you is because they are not in a place of strength or they're not in a good place. And how do you, what's your approach to a team that's struggling? Obviously when a team is struggling, stresses and it's not a fun environment and you voluntarily walk into those environments. So what's your approach to a team that is maybe broken and needs your help? Well, we're all broken at some point. And so there's never a team that's not partially broken. Again, because I always remind people that coaches, you coach people. So when someone asks you, hey, you know, what do you coach? I coach volleyball. No, you don't, no, you coach people who happen to play volleyball. So never forget you're a people coach and you people builder. Your palate or your medium at the moment happens to be volleyball. And, and so we spend a lot of time, the best coaches I've been around and the best teams, you're right, usually they don't invest in that until there's a crisis or you know a major catastrophe. Then they realize, okay, this isn't working. So it, it has, my experience anyways, it has to be relentless, has to be regular, has to be normalized. It has to be collective 
and it takes years. So one of the teams I'm working with now, what I've seen, I, I just told the coach the other day, I said, the word that came to mind was maturity. This is a very emotionally mature team. They're solving things on their own. They're taking initiative. They're asking different kinds of questions. They're very proactive. Um, they're just the way they speak, the language they use. They're, they're in a different place now. And it doesn't mean we've, we've got it, but we've, it's like you jump up another level. Okay. Now we're at a different level. We can have different kinds of conversations. And that was really with that particular team over two years, nonstop bringing in other people, exposing them to lots of different people, different consultants, different, like it's relentless. When, when we, the Olympics were postponed, we decided not doing anything was not an option, but we also were careful not to just let's do something, let's keep them busy. And so we gave them some space to get angry, cry, yell, scream, post stuff on social media, whatever, just be human. Yeah, go for it. And then, okay, come back and, and let's think about the mission still. We're still on the mission. The mission hasn't been canceled, it's just postponed. And then we did a virtual Olympics. So we had this, you know, we had the schedule already. So we, we played the Olympics. Uh, we did it over a month, six weeks. We we did imagery. We visualized all the matches and we debriefed them. We did scouting. And and I'm sure by the end of it, the athletes would probably think, okay, enough of this. <laughs> but, but, and guess what? We won a gold medal. <laughs> but at the, what I've come to learn, and then we just did something else where we did a master class for two weeks where I exposed them to astronauts, uh, comedians, musicians, so poker players. So they get exposed to, they get out of their sport and they see performance. Everything's a performance, life's a performance. And so that stuff that poker player talked about, wow, that I get it. Like I could use that in our sport and I never watch poker, but it's not about poker. <laughs> it's about a human performing in and with or against and with uh, other humans and how you read people and how you control emotions. And so if, when this team does get to the Olympics and when they do succeed, I know they're gonna do great. Uh, how, again, however we define success, but we'll have peace of mind in knowing that we did all we could. We won't be able to look back because I've actually played out in my mind, what will those interviews look like in the media, you know, after that experience? And if someone were to say like, what was the turning point? What was, you know, what, what was the key to success? It was everything. Mm. There's no one thing or one moment in my mind. I know oftentimes teams can say, oh, you know, this was a key moment when this happened. Okay. That, that could be a vivid moment for sure, but it's, it's everything. It's all those things that you do. So be, you got to be relentless. You're never done. Coaches often have defining characteristics, right? Some coaches are loud and, you know, they really motivate their athletes outwardly and they, or they're, or they're soft-spoken or they have, you know, they're very stoic or whatever it is. They want their athletes to lead more than them and all these things. And 
what defines you, do you think? Like when you go and you, you work with athletes on your own teams or you work with other coaches, what do you think people, how do they define you? Oh, here comes Dr. Wade Gilbert. Uh, he's such a guy. He's such a goofball. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's funny. I have been people sometimes over my life, people have said, man, he's kind of dorky. And I say, well, I think it's because I'm playful and I'm not afraid to just more and more as you get older, you know, just, this is who I am. And yeah, silly, <laughs> whatever. So the playfulness being a good listener, like trying to be attentive and kind of a steady, calm demeanor. And I, I, I honestly, it's not something I've worked at. I think it's just who I am. And a lot of times athletes have said, you know, it's just calming to have you around. So that idea of calm breeds calm. I try to be that kind of steady, calming presence in their chaotic world. Yeah, and I think I, I, you've had different roles as a coach, right? And But now you were talking about the Canadian women's softball team. And you are one of the coaches, but you have the, the title of mental performance coach. Does that make a big difference to you? Or do you think all coaches are really that? Again, to, to lead a, a great program, a great team, it's a team effort. So like a lot of coaches I've worked with, they wouldn't hire me to be on staff because we have those conversations and they go out and do it, or they have someone else on the team that, that can do that. Uh, whereas in this particular case, the coach, we started out, like I, I was kind of his coach for three years before he said, you know what, we want you around more. Why don't you actually come on staff? and play that role as well. Cause I had training and background and experience in that area too. So I could do that. But I think it really depends on the, on the context, the coach. Um, and yeah, great coaches are mental performance coaches, right? They're constantly great athletic trainers are great mental performance coaches. Great massage therapists are great mental performance coaches, great strength and conditioning coaches are great mental performance coaches. So those conversations can happen anywhere, right? For sure. As a lifelong learner, we, I felt that early in our conversation today that you're always learning and you're always trying to see what's new and, and how you can be better at even helping coaches be better in your consulting and that. And wait, do we need new or it has enough been done that we mm -hmm. are just forgetting sometimes to look back and learn from what's been done? Yeah, yeah. Well, it is an enterprise. It is a it is a machine, right? So you, there's always new books, new podcasts, new articles. I'm always hesitant when people advocate for the way, like this is the new way of doing this. Because really, I've heard musicians and artists talk about this, like nothing I've created is new. It's my take on it. But, you know, it's based even subconsciously on other music I've heard, other musicians I've talked to, other people I've worked with. So to say, hey, I came up with this. Well, no, I mean, yes, you, you activated it. So let's give credit for that. You took the initiative and the effort to activate it and, and write that book or produce that podcast. So we need people to, it's, to me, it's like a fire, right? So it's like uh, that Billy Joel song, we didn't start the fire. Yeah. So we didn't start the fire, but someone has to tend the fire. So the podcast, the books, the conferences, the webinars, all these things, it's like throwing logs on the fire. So we keep the fire burning and 
if someone has to tend it and if, if not the fire will, will burn out and then we can get into trouble and and you see like in the world of politics right now all the time you know you kind of say you wish some of our our leaders had that historical perspective understand you know what you're not the first one to have these issues or to be in this situation in fact leaders for thousands of years have dealt with conflict and these similar types of situations you could probably learn a lot just by taking a look at what's happened before us so to kind of use that fire analogy be like you you going building a new fire and say hey look i figured out how to build a fire no you didn't i mean <laughs> lots of people build fires so can we keep adding logs to that fire and, and putting our own spin on it and and i one of coach wooden's favorite maxims was you know the, the problem with new books is it keeps us from reading old books and that always sticks with me because that again when i was writing the book i wanted to do due diligence and not come across and pretend like oh guess what this guy wake gilbert figured out coaching come on so to me it's it's like indiana jones in a sense like i it's these adventures and i love finding old references and old books and research papers from 1910 or 1895. So, oh my gosh, people were talking about this 100 years ago. This isn't new. So giving credit to that. And, and then also, I think what we can add now is it's keeping that fire alive and putting contextualizing it in our current culture. So current cultural references to help make the stories meaningful for people. I think that's a value that you know we can add people like us who are producing and creating things speaking of that we have some rapid fire questions that we've asked all of our guests here in season two and and that's really cool the same questions bring up so many different answers oh, yeah. <laughs> because right you each hear them differently and you each feel them differently and so uh, i figure you and i should run through them let's do it what is your favorite sound well i wrote something down but then i was thinking more about it i have a few one one would be my my kids voice my wife's voice because it's just love and joy and meaning and purpose so when i hear their their voice that's brings joy but then another favorite sound would be i was trying to figure out what's the word to describe the sound of be sitting on a shore shoreline in a mountains in a mountain lake is it the waves is it the wind is it the birds so whatever would capture that, that, that sound of, and it's not silence, it's maybe the sound of solitude, space to be quiet, but also be present. What does being unapologetically human mean to you and why is it important? Well, being the dork, <laughs> you know, and we all have that inside of us. Think of how often we hold back from saying or doing or acting, you know, we don't dance, we don't sing in public, you know, all these things that... You have urges to do at times and you say, well, no, because people are going to laugh and it looks silly and versus those people who just put it out. And so where are those moments in those spaces where that's a great team, right? When, when you can just be spontaneous and be yourself and laugh at yourself when people laugh at you too. Uh, those are rare. I found anyways, those are kind of rare moments and experiences. Some of the, the most alive experiences joyful experiences I've had in my life. I've been sitting around a campfire with my buddies. We go on this annual trip and, you know, you get to the end of the day, you've been hiking, fishing all day, 
you know, and consuming some adult beverages around the fire and, and you just staring into this fire and, and you just say the weirdest, I, I wish sometimes we do a guy will have his phone on record or something, but I wish we would have recorded some of these conversations because you just say things and you do things that you never normally would. And it wouldn't happen alone. Like it's the communal aspect of it. You just feed off of each other. Hey, well, maybe that leads us into something funny that happened to you. You know, you're in a lot of serious situations and yet mm -hmm. in our lives, sometimes those are, you know, lead to the funniest things. Well, yeah, a couple of funny things. One that I've shared before is <laughs> the um, driving Coach Wooden uh, home from UCLA. 10 lanes of traffic on the 405 highway driving from UCLA to his condo. It's only about a half hour drive. But it was rush hour, stop and start traffic. It was my first few months in Los Angeles. You know, I'm putting perspective. You know, I'm still in my mind. I'm this little kid from Northern Canada. I'm driving Coach John Wooden home. This is not. This is weird. That's nuts. <laughs> yeah, and so he's in the passenger seat. I'm driving. I have a little Honda CRV driving down there, and he, um, uh, he's telling stories. I had a friend in the back seat who was asking questions and and I'm just trying to navigate and this is before GPS or you know so it's all you got to and in a big in Los Angeles I'm try, still trying to learn the city and where to get off and get across and so I'm in the carpool lane I don't know how I ended up there to be honest with you but I was in the carpool lane and his exit all of a sudden he said hey that's the next exit's my exit so I got to get across 10 lanes of traffic rush hour LA to get this exit and really in hindsight so you miss the exit you take the next one but you know I'm panicking and so I you know I'm supposed to leave the carpool lane you know unless there's a, an opportunity to do that so it's a double line so I did some uh, some interesting maneuvers to get all the way across and and he didn't flinch he was just very quiet and then he put his hand on on my arm when I was getting off and, and he proceeded to get very very calmly to give me the rules on how to enter and exit a carpool lane and <laughs> like a driving lesson, right? Be like your grandpa, right? And scolding me, just that was his way. So it was very firm and <laughs> teaching, correcting me. And so I always laugh back at that moment, but then a couple others just quickly popped in my head. One was, when we were in our conversations here related to sport and coaching. So one of the sports I've coached over the years is baseball for eight, 10 year olds. And I remember this was the still the most traumatic, probably the most traumatic experience I've ever had. So at this one level of Babe Ruth baseball, and you can imagine, put yourself in this context. So Southern California, it's sunny, baseball's a big deal. All the parents are lined up watching coaches and, you know, you got a good crowd there. And even though they're, they're seven or eight, it's a big deal, it's, you know, and they had to, I think it was seven or eight. They, the kids had to pitch from the mound, which was probably not appropriate, but anyways, that was how the league was set up, but the coach got to finish the count. So if a kid had, because, you know, these kids are learning how to throw. So the balls are all over their head, bouncing in the dirt. So it's pretty normal a kid would get four balls, not even get to swing at anything. 
So the rule in the league was the coach could come out and finish the count. You could at least get some swings and maybe get a hit, right? But you had to pitch from the mound. It's not like you could go up and toss. And I didn't, I played baseball one year when I was a kid. I I was a hockey kid and I I really never played baseball. And here I am. So I, I, at first I didn't think anything of it because I thought, oh, what's the big deal? I'll just throw the ball. And I didn't practice it. Just say, yeah, I'll throw the ball to the kid. Well, (laughs) I get out there and of course now everybody's watching and you have kids from like three feet tall, three and a half feet tall to five feet tall. So they're all different sizes and they they're crouching down. So imagine a kid who's like three foot five or four foot tall and he's crouched all down and you're 20, 25 feet away standing on a mound and you got to pitch a ball to this kid and his strike zone is like two inches. Right. And so I remember, and you don't get multiple pitches. So if the kid had one strike, you get two pitches. So you don't get to go out there till the kid hits it. And I remember after the first few times, um, my ball, I would be nervous. I have one, I get out there and realize, oh my gosh, I got, especially if a kid only has, has two strikes, I'd only have one shot. And I pitch it and it's three feet over his head. And I'm thinking, oh my God. And of course, parents are groaning and it's like, come on. So I, I had a grad student who played on the college baseball team at the time. And I w- went back to school the next, after this was on the weekend, I said, you got to teach me how to pitch like for these kids. So we put a, uh, taped up a strike zone on the wall outside the gym at school. He was teaching me and I, I got pretty good at it. But there are still moments, and the one that, the reason I'm sharing this, the one that really sticks out is, I'll never forget, I pitched the ball, and this kid, he's real serious, and he's just this little kid, and he didn't budge, he did not move at all, and the ball hit him right on the head, like, it was almost like a lob, and it just landed right on the top of his head, his helmet, and he didn't even move, like, he didn't move out of the way or anything, and everybody's watching, and you just—I <laughs> just hit the kid in the head, and <laughs> it's like, it awful. And, and so that was something that was a good reminder about performance anxiety. And also, I, I tried to convince the director of the league that you know, if it's really about the kids, why not let the coach take a few feet in underhand, pitch the kid a ball so he can get a swing at it, you know? <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Hey, Wade, what does hope mean to you? For me, I was thinking about that one too. Hope, the first word that came to mind is survival because that's how we've survived as a species. There there has to be hope that the sun will come up tomorrow, that I'll find food, that I'll find a spouse, that I'll find shelter. So to me, survival and, and evolution is the first thing that came to mind, but then faith to just... Hope is, you, you, you could try and be rational and logical about it, but at the end of the day, it's, it's just faith. you having faith in something. What is your biggest takeaway from the great pause that COVID has created? Reinforcing the importance of, of stillness, pausing, stopping. So we talk about it, think about it. Before COVID, there's all this big push I've seen with uh, Olympic associations and NCAA athlete wellness, athlete mental health, coach wellness more and more they're recognizing. And so all, I mean, for years, right? We're talking about 
balance, perspective, taking time for yourself, meditation. Yeah, 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 that's, yeah, great, great, got it, got it, got it, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, guess what? We're gonna stop. No flights, no camps, no games, not going to work. And guess what happens? People rediscover their family and their friends and their hobbies and make time for yoga and meditation and mindfulness. So now the, the great challenge will be when it all ramps up again, do we just jump back on the treadmill or do we say, hold on, let's try and use some of those things we learned. Who is the bravest leader you know? Why is that? And what elements of humanist do they display and allow others to display? Well, I don't know this person uh, personally, but the first person that came to mind was Nelson Mandela. Yeah. And reading his autobiography was really influential in my development um, and reinforcing the characteristics of patience, grace, humility, understanding, empathy. So those are all things that to me are characteristics of great leaders and I could not think of a better example of someone who was put in jail for 30 years and to still have hope and faith and humanity and walk out of that and then become this global leader that influenced so many people. So that, that's who kind of came to mind. What is an example of the best in humanity that you have seen during this time? I would say like teammates coming to a place where they are more empathetic and, under, and more willing to try and see things from other people's perspectives. So understanding that, like for example, it was in Canada, Bell, Let's Talk Day. And some athletes, you know, we have our private communication channels and they, they shared that and started a dialogue and a conversation. Some of the athletes on the team were posting, reposting and things on social media and watching uh, The Weight of Gold, that HBO special, um, and then having conversations around that. And, you know, that may have happened, I think, in the past kind of privately, maybe, you know, quietly. But now the whole team was, it was just, it was just normal. Yeah, we talk about these things and this is important to care for each other. Finally, who are two or three people who have influenced you and how did they impact your life? Yeah, uh, two that come to mind right away. One is Pierre Trudel, um, my advisor and friend from Ottawa University. And uh, we still, to this day, um, you know, so I'm trying to think, 1990, so 31 years. Um, yeah, just continuing to... And it's one of those relationships where, you know, you might not talk to each other for six or seven months and then you just pick up. Um, you know, I so see you, you both have your own journeys and stories. He was really influential in, in, in giving me a perspective and a model of how to, how to be human, how to live, how to live a life, not just be consumed by your work, especially in our fields in high performance and academia, where it's easy to just get consumed and your work's never finished. So it's easy to just lose sight of family and life and everything else. So he always had good perspective. And then the other one that came to mind was my high school track coach, cross country and track coach. And 
I, I really kind of found a joy in, in running and, and being outside. Uh, going to high school in Ottawa, the high school I went to was, if you're familiar with Ottawa, was, it was Brookfield High School, was about less than a mile away from Vincent Massey Park and Hogs Back. From there, you, you can run along the canal all the way through the whole city and parks. And so we would train in those areas and he would run with us. So he wouldn't give us a, a training program. He would always run with us. And, and I just, you know, those moments running in, in the fall, right? When it's snowing sometimes and mud and cold. And he was always there, always had a smile on his face. And, and he just led by example. And, and I still think of him sometimes. So yeah, that has sparked that, that passion and that joy for trying to be like that for other people. Thanks for being uh, one of our heroes. We really appreciate it. It's been awesome. Uh, thank you, Michelle, for the opportunity to share. And, and I'll leave with one other quote from UCLA that is on the wall there. When one person teaches, two people learn. And so every time you have an opportunity to share your story or to teach or to coach or to talk to people, you're, you, it's an opportunity to learn about yourself. So thanks for, for teaching me today too. That's Dr. Wade Gilbert, trying to be like that for other people and leading by example. What an example the coach doc Wade Gilbert has set for the rest of us today. Let's all remember to love the game Continue our conversations, always be willing to learn and be relentless because we are never done. And that's another hero in our midst. You can find all the heroes we've talked to on our website, uh, heroesinourmidst.ca or anywhere you find podcasts. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn and like us while you're there. Thanks.